We're looking today at our text here in Luke chapter 2, verse 21 and following. The first point of, of what we're considering is the presentation of Jesus by his parents to the Lord. They took him to the temple to present him to the Lord. And you'll know from your uh, bulletin outline, the first thing that was involved was circumcision and his official naming. Official naming. That went along with the, the circumcision. When we say circumcision, from where did this uh, procedure originate? And why? That's a good question. Where did get? Where did we get it? And why? Well, let me say that you would be wrong if you said that circumcision originated with the Mosaic Law. Actually, it's much older than that. It's hundreds of years older than that. Jesus, in speaking to the religious teachers of his day, who thought that Moses was the one that had given them circumcision said these words. Actually, says Jesus, it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. John 7, verse 22. In other words, it dates to the time of the patriarch Abraham, when God called him out of his paganism, out of Ur in the land of the Chaldeans, and entered into a covenant with him to give him the land of promise, and to bless all nations through his heir. Paul tells us that Abraham's heir was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now that's thousands of years back from our day. But you see how prophecy is fulfilled and how it relates. Here's what God said. To Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Genesis 17, verses 10 through 13. Now, brethren, as with all external rites, circumcision was to symbolize something. Okay, so the question, what did it symbolize? And God answers in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Can we not see that the right of circumcision, in this particular case, was symbolic of God stripping away the fleshly, sinful leanings of the heart to equip his people to love and serve him with all of their heart and with all of their soul and mind and strength. This was the spiritual reality behind the particular right. 
God was saying, you know, you got a lot of fleshly appetites in your heart. You got a lot of love of the world there and love of sinful things. And I want that all stripped away. And this right is to remind you of that, that you don't belong to the world. You belong to me. Now, unfortunately, as the years rolled by, and as the rite of circumcision was, in, was incorporated into the Mosaic Law, it began to take on a life of its own. People forgot about the spiritual meaning, and they began to concentrate on the rite itself, as though physical circumcision was spiritually vital in and of itself. Wrong thing to do, but people do that. May I say that people have done the same in our day with the rite of baptism, which is the sign of the new covenant. Well, okay, what does baptism symbolize? Paul tells us. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we know that our old self, here's a reference to the flesh again, just like in circumcision. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is all from Romans chapter 6. So think about this. Circumcision for the patriarchs symbolized the removal of the flesh so that the people could love and serve God from the heart. Not just going through the motions, but from the heart. And baptism for us symbolizes the death and the burial of the flesh so that we could come alive in Christ and love and serve the Lord. And by the way, that's why immersion is the symbol of real baptism. When we stand in the baptismal pool back here behind the uh, podium and we're in the water up to here, the procedure of baptism where we put a person down in the water and then bring them up out of the water, it's death burial, and resurrection. That's what the symbolism portrays. It's the spiritual reality. It doesn't save, but it tells what has happened in our heart. Now, what's the problem? Here it is. Religion, get the word, religion has made the right itself the thing that makes a person new in but to do so is to misunderstand the right and to make the symbol the reality. So people by the thousands get baptized thinking that that is the means of salvation. They make the symbol, water baptism, saving in effect, when in reality it is only emblematic of what must be in the heart. What? A dying to self, 
a dying to sin and being renewed in spirit to love and serve God. Portrays the same thing as circumcision, but we're in the new covenant here, so baptism is the new rite. That's what it symbolizes. What about the eighth day? We have that mentioned here in our text, but if you look back at the first chapter, Luke 1, verse 59, when we're talking about John the Baptist, we read this. On the eighth day, this is uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, no, he is to be called John. Of course, the angel had predicted that that's what his name was to be. And this is John the Baptist, cousin to Jesus. What about our text? We'll look at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So we have this naming process that goes on. They get their official name on day eight, and they're circumcised on day eight. Day eight, that is from their birth, the eighth day of their life is when this is to be done. And we read that in Genesis 17, right? Concerning Abraham and his descendants. On the eighth day, they were to be circumcised. Now, again, I ask the question, <clears throat> why the eighth day? Let me, let me read what I found. Dr. Thompson, a writer for Apologetics Press, writes this. In 1935, Professor H. Dame proposed the name vitamin K for the factor in foods that helped prevent hemorrhaging in baby chicks. We now know vitamin K is responsible for the production by the liver of the element known as prothrombin. If vitamin K is deficient, there will be a prothrombin deficiency and hemorrhaging may occur. Oddly, it is only on the fifth through the seventh day of the newborn male's life that vitamin K, which is produced by bacteria in the intestinal tract, is present in adequate quantities. Vitamin K, coupled with prothrombin, causes blood coagulation, which is important in any surgical procedure. Holt and McIntosh, in their classic work, Holt Pediatrics, observed that a newborn infant has, quote, peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth day of life. Hemorrhage at this time, though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive. They may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and cause death from shock and the exsanguination, which means extreme blood loss. Obviously then, I'm reading still, if vitamin K is not produced in sufficient quantities until day five through seven, it would be wise to postpone any surgery until sometime after that. 
But, he writes, why did God specify day eight? He goes on, on the eighth day, the amount of prothrombin present actually is elevated above 100% of normal. And that is the only day in the male's life in which this will be the case under normal circumstances. If surgery is to be performed, day eight is the perfect day to do it. Vitamin K and prothrombin levels are at their peak, end quote. This was discovered by this, these doctors in 1953. Discovered in 1953. But you know it was in place for 4,000 years. Dating back to Abraham. God makes no mistakes, brethren. And nothing is incidental, nothing is accidental in a world controlled by God. The day of his circumcision was also the day of his official naming of Jesus, meaning Savior. So the Lord knows what he's doing. Secondly, why the presentation at the temple? Look at verse 22 and following. Mary took him to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is six miles from Bethlehem. Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, this statement has to do with two distinct things that are going on. Number one, the concept of first fruits. That is that God is entitled to be first in one's life, including the first one to receive all that we have or all that we own. Let me read it for you. The first offspring of every womb, all the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Exodus 13, verse 12. And then the next verse, verse 13 says, you are to redeem every firstborn among your sons. So get the point here. If it was an animal from the livestock, that was the firstborn, it would be sacrificed to the Lord. If it was a person, if it was your son, that child was to be redeemed. Let me read it for you. This is from Numbers <clears throat> chapter 3. The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites, now that's a tribe, one of the tribes, in place of the first male offspring, of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, <clears throat> I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. Numbers 3, verse 11 through 13. What's God doing here? He's teaching Israel, look, <clears throat> I'm first. The creator of the universe ought to be first in your thinking. The one that gives you the harvest. The one that gives you the livestock that are producing lambs and, and cattle and so forth. Even though those children that come from your womb. These are all gifts from the Lord. 
Psalm 127 actually says that children are a gift from the Lord. So he's saying to them, you need to think of your benefactor. You need to think of me first. It's not a pride thing with God. It's what is due him by his dignity and by his majesty. In Numbers 8, verse 18, he says, I have taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn sons in Israel. Okay, so what is meant by redeem your son? It means you give an offering in the place of your son. You give a substitute payment. This acknowledges the Levite who is going to serve the Lord in place of your son. You can compare Numbers 8, verse 12 and following. But according to Numbers 18 and verse 15, it reads this way. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male among unclean animals. You must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. Numbers 8, 15, and 16. Five shekels is about two ounces of silver. So you could be really poor and still come up with two ounces of silver, probably two coins. We noted the other week that Joseph and Mary were poor. That's very true. They were poor. But they were not destitute. No, Joseph was a carpenter by trade, and he made his living as such. So when Jesus was presented at the temple, there are two things going on here. The payment of the five shekels to redeem him and to allow a Levite to serve in his place. And secondly, the pair of birds to act as the purification sacrifices for Mary having given birth. They didn't have the price of a lamb. That's because they were poor, but they had the price of two birds. And so one was for burn offering, one for sin offering, and they did have the price of that. Now in all of this, we observe compliance to God's law. Neither Mary nor Joseph were exempt from these regulations because of their favored position before God, nor were they exempt because they were economically poor. God makes it possible for even the poor to have a way of praising him and worshiping him and so they're not left in the dust they're not to be considered as second class citizens in the community of God no they may only have two birds to sacrifice instead of a lamb but they have something to sacrifice to give up to God and that's what our offerings are about so that's what's going on here Jesus is being circumcised Eighth day, and he's being presented to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord, to give the shekels, the silver shekels, in place of sacrifice. Obviously, that's what the silver is about. You're redeeming your son. We don't want sacrifice to take place off your son. We don't kill our sons. We, we will sacrifice the animals, firstborn of them, but not, not our sons. We will redeem our son. We'll give a payment instead and let the Levites serve 
the Lord all the days of their life. This brings us now to Simeon's praise and prediction. We're told by Luke, verse 25 and following, that Simeon was a resident of Jerusalem who was righteous and devout. Let me put it this way. He took his faith seriously. That's what it means, righteous and devout. No doubt because the Holy Spirit was upon him. Yes, we read that. Note that this is before the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that we have in the New Testament. We have already seen the Spirit's work in Mary and Joseph. We could probe further. We could go back further and note that the Spirit was operative in Samson's life. Judges 14, verse 19. That's the reason for his great strength. This was nothing that to do with him personally, but had to do with the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Or we could read about the Holy Spirit coming upon the skilled craftsmen who built the tabernacle furnishings, Exodus 31 and verse 3, the holy Abba and Bezalel. And they did everything. They, they worked with silver. They worked with gold. They worked with tapestry. They worked, you know, who has all those skills? People indwelled by the Spirit of God. They were artists, to be sure, but wow, when God got a hold of them, they went ballistic. Or we could read about the Spirit coming upon Gideon as a military leader, Judges 6, verse 34, who was valiant in battle, not in his own strength, but in the Spirit's strength. But here's the thing. These movements of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times were temporary, and they were designed for specific tasks. The Spirit came upon somebody, they did the task, and that was it. What is different after Pentecost, reference to the New Testament celebration, is the indwelling of God's Spirit, which Jesus promised to his people. Let me read it for you. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That's new. Not just for the task, but forever. Let me read on. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because... It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, verse 16 through 19. Christ comes back and indwells his people by the Holy Spirit. That said... Simeon's case falls within the perimeters of special revelation. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. At the precise moment, you understand, that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus in to do for him what the custom of the law required. What's that? That's circumcision, verse 21, and consecration of him, verse 23. Two things. What does he do? Simeon immediately understood who this baby was. How do you understand that? The Spirit of God is revealing these things to him. So he scooped Jesus up in his arms and he composed this song. Verse 28 and following. 
Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's saying, Lord, I can die now. I can die in peace now. Why? Because you've kept your promise to me. And not only to me, but to all of Israel. And not only to all of Israel, but also to the Gentile nations. And that's the point I'm bringing out here. The Gentiles. Simeon is a Jew, and if you know anything about their philosophy in the Old Testament, they didn't much like Gentiles. Gentiles is anything that's non-Jew. That's you. <laughs> That's me. But do you know, Simeon has grasped hold of the truth that's throughout the Old Testament. Let me read some of the text. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea, along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. That's a reference to Christ. Didn't Jesus come from Galilee of the Gentiles? The region we're talking about. Well, most, most assuredly, he did. Again, Isaiah 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold you on, hold, take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Well, he's saying to the Messiah to come. You're going to set prisoners free. You're going to give sight to the blind. And it's not just talking about physical sight and the miracles that Jesus did. It's talking about spiritual blindness. People that can't see me, that don't understand me, that don't understand God, that don't love God. You're going to do this marvelous work and it's going to be among the Gentiles. Now he began, God began, with Abraham and the Jewish people, but his full intent was and has always been to provide a savior for the world. The world, including the nations. So what I'm saying here is that Gentiles being saved are not an afterthought with God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 15, verse 7 and following, he says, accept one another. Now he's writing to Gentiles. Romans would be, um, they wouldn't be Jewish people. He writes, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you know what he's doing? Paul is quoting all these Old Testament texts to these Romans saying, you know, you're in God's plan. You Gentiles are in God's plan. You're not an afterthought. Yes, he came to Israel, his people. They were to be a witness to the to the nations, they failed in that aspect. So God's taken on the, the, the project himself in the gospel. Bottom line, there are not two saviors. There are not two saviors. One for Jews, one for non-Jews. But it is as Peter declared, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. And, in, and defining the constituency of the church, Paul tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 28. That was unheard of in the Old Testament. You had to be an Israelite be considered the people of God. And even, we read about it in terms of circumcision, even if you were a foreigner, you know, and you were uh, a servant that had been purchased to serve in one of the Israelite homes, you had to be circumcised so that you were considered at least Jewish, a Jewish proselyte. Simeon's song of praise concerning Jesus was well received by Joseph and Mary, but... In his song, he has a prediction. And the prediction was a bit disconcerting to Mary. Here it is. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Luke 2, verse 34 and 35. What is Simeon prophesying concerning Jesus? He is saying Jesus is going to be a great divider. He's going to be a divider. Some will believe in him, many will not. Some will accept his teaching as true and complete, others will speak against him. People's inner thoughts will surface when Jesus becomes the subject of the discussion. Do we not see this even today? You start talking to some people about Christ, and you'll soon find out. There'll be those pro, and there'll be those that are against. Now, this is the first hint we have in this whole birthing account of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus that all will not be peace and tranquility. 
And a particular pain, a particular pain awaits Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul too. How could it be otherwise with a mother standing at the foot of a Roman cross on which her son was being executed? For nothing evil at all, but just because he was the holy son of God. I can't conceive of that even with sinful children. But Mary knew who he was. So Simeon's prophecy and his psalm here, very rewarding. And then as the last point, look at Anna's thanksgiving, verse 36 and following. Who's Anna? Well, she's an 84-year-old widow that worshiped God in the temple quarters night and day with fasting and prayer. That doesn't mean that she stayed up all the time and never slept. It's a colloquialism. It's like saying, <clears throat> every time you go into the temple, you're going to find Anna there. And by the way, the temple did have living quarters for people. And I'm, I'm thinking that one of those was given to her by the Levites uh, because she was a widow and was there ministering through fasting and prayer. Verse 38 says she joined the group. What group? Simeon, Joseph, Mary, at the very moment Simeon finished his prediction and the scripture says she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to what? To the redemption of Jerusalem. Now this is a different redemption as we're going to see shortly. It's not two silver coins. This is a redemption that's much more costly. Evidently, the people of the day lived in expectation of the coming Redeemer. They read the prophecies. They believed the prophecies. Time did not dull their faith or cloud their hope, although these prophecies were centuries old. They understood God to work in accord with his own timetable and to speak only what was true. And if God is true and not a liar like men, then his word must come true. <clears throat> By the way, we're in the same boat today, aren't we? We're waiting for the second coming of Christ because there's prophecies concerning that that have yet to be fulfilled. It's been 2,000 years since Christ. I'm still believing. I'm still hoping. I'm still looking forward to those promises being fulfilled because God is on his own timetable. Now, what do we learn from Jesus' presentation at the table. Number one, we should learn that to elevate an ordinance to the means of salvation is to miss the meaning of such and to belittle Christ's work. Get that? When you lay so much emphasis on an ordinance and you make it say something that it isn't meant to say, you distort the ordinance and you belittle Christ. Circumcision. We started out by talking about that. Listen to what Paul says about circumcision. This is a blow you away. He says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Oh, did I read that right? Did I read that right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything anything 
If we only had that little phrase, that one little phrase in the New Testament, <clears throat> that should be sufficient for us to say, you better watch that you don't put too much emphasis on the ordinance. He goes on. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16. If you know anything about the doctrinal error which arose in the churches of Galatia, to which Paul is writing, you will recall that Judaizers, Jewish teachers, came in to the churches and they began to teach that yes, yes, one had to believe in Jesus to be saved, but to that faith you must add the Jewish rite of circumcision. Sounds rather innocent on first consideration, but the error below the surface was not innocent at all. They taught that to Christ, to Christ, must be added circumcision. Is there anything defective or lacking in the cross work of Jesus? Think about this. Does God require us to add a religious observance to him and what he's accomplished? Now, the argument offers this warped logic. Well, um, God himself ordained circumcision as a sign of the covenant, so how can that be wrong to insist on it to be saved? By the way, this was a big issue in the New Testament church. You can read about it in Acts 14. Now, the original account, way back there in Genesis, shows that the ordinance did not make the covenant but was the sign of the covenant that had been ratified. Let me read it for you. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Genesis 17, verse 11. It's not the covenant, but it's a sign of it. The covenant's already been made between me and you. God is talking. In Romans 4, Paul makes a point about timing. And he does it because of what's being taught in the New Testament times. These Jews are going around saying, yeah, go ahead and believe in Jesus, but you better be circumcised too. And here's, here's what Paul says. He's talking about timing, timing, timing. And he asks this question. When was Abraham saved? Justified. When was Abraham saved? He answers his own question. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Romans 4 verse 11. And he's referring to the Gentiles who would not have been circumcised. That's a Jewish rite, not a Greek rite. Baptism falls into the same category, folks. Does baptism save us or were we justified while yet being unbaptized? We could word it that way. Peter says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, that sounds like he's saying that baptism saves you. Let me read on. 
And this water, water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body. He's not talking about water, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. There's a baptism in the Spirit, in which by the Spirit of God we're brought into the family of God. And he's saying water baptism symbolizes that, but the reality is the clear conscience that you have before God the resurrected life of Jesus Christ who now intercedes for you in the heavens above. Now, none of this means that circumcision and baptism are not or were not important, but they are important as the sign of a new heart that has died to sin, the flesh, and is alive to God and His will through faith in Christ. But anything, let me say it strongly as I can, Anything that detracts from Jesus' work or pretends to complete it is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ and his perfect redemption. No religious rite is a means of salvation. Not circumcision, not baptism, not prayer, not tithes giving, not fasting, no works of benevolence, none of those things save. None save but Jesus. He alone wears that name, Savior. And we need to keep that in mind. And by the way, Christianity is the only faith in the world that believes this and teaches this. Every other religion outside of Christianity is a works religion. If they say anything about Jesus, it's always Jesus plus. It's not Jesus alone. It's Jesus plus. You do this and this and this and this and this. There is no plus in Christianity that we attach to Christ. He alone is Savior. It's a tremendous lesson to learn about ordinances because so many people, put, in our day, they put the weight on water baptism. And guess what? We're, we're Baptists. We believe in water baptism as the sign. But we're not out there saying to the world, you know, come, come be baptized so that you can get saved. No, no, no. We're saying if you're saved, you should follow the Lord in baptism. You have the reality in your heart. You ought to follow through with the sign that he's commanded. Lesson two. When Joseph and Mary paid the silver coins, they redeemed their son and they satisfied the law's requirements and Jesus was legally exempt from serving by the Levites in God's temple. But, here it is, Jesus took upon himself the priestly role and redeemed his people with his own blood sacrifice. The whole idea of the earthly temple was to be a facsimile of the true worship center in heaven where the blood of bulls and goats had no redemptive powers. And neither could redemption 
be obtained by paying silver coins and having a Levite serve in your place. Hebrews 9, verse 24, and following words it this way. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. No, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Peter words it this way. By the way, this study that this week with me and, and finding out about the silver coins and the redemption shekels and all that. And then I thought of this verse from Peter. And this verse from Peter just, it popped. Came alive. Here, here it is. You know, says Peter, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. Price of true redemption, redemption that is effective for all eternity, is not silver coins. It's not money. It's the lifeblood. Jesus' sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, said Jesus. And a man lay down his life for his friends. And then the next phrase is so precious. You are my friends. What's he saying? To his disciples. I'm laying my life down for you. That's the price of redemption. And then the third lesson, it's one we don't like to hear, is that Jesus Christ is the source of division among people. His own words are in Matthew 10. We were looking a little bit at this in the Sunday school hour. Matthew 10, verse 32 and following. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But, but whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose, this is Jesus speaking, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Boy, that's a shocker, isn't it? He goes on. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It divides. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. From his own lips, this is a very, very hard pill to swallow. But it is essential. It's a matter of loyalty, folks. It's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of first love. You've all heard the statement, well, you know, we are family, and family has to stick together. The assumption is blood is thicker than water, which means family comes above all others. Jesus was a realist. He knew that not all within a given family are going to renounce their sin, seek his forgiveness, follow his teachings, confess him as Lord and Savior. No, instead they will reject him and they will mock him and they will mock you and speak evil of your faith. I'm not talking about people out in the world. I'm talking, well, I am in a sense, but I'm talking about your family, your, your blood relatives. Then what? I mean, well, if you knuckle under to family pressure, then you will have to renounce Christ. He says that, and if you renounce Christ, he will renounce you. Matthew 10, verse 33. Jesus is teaching this. Family ties with blood relatives is temporal. It's, it's destined to end. But family ties with Jesus the Savior last for eternity. Through God's adoption, we are enabled to address God as Abba, Father, and have it be so. God isn't leaving us without a family. He's just bringing us into his family. And he's saying to us with the, the, this hard pill to swallow, my family, the spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are more important than the blood ties you have. Jesus will be, as Simeon said, the cause for the rising and falling of many in Israel and a sign that will be spoken against. A sign that will be spoken against. In the choosing of being for or against Christ, Verse 35, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What does he mean by that? He's saying you will discover in short order where, God's peop where, where people's affections lie when you start talking about Christ. When you start giving forth the gospel of Christ, people will show their real And what Jesus is saying in the Matthew 13 text is choose God's family. Choose God's family, if need be, over your own. That's faith. That's loyalty. 
And guess what? Your Savior not only demands that, but he deserves it. Whatever family has done for you, I'm talking to the family, God has done far more. He's sacrificing his son that you and your sins might be forgiven and brought into the holy community of God. We put so much emphasis on temporal. Do we have the same emphasis on eternal? May the Lord give us his grace. Father, thank you for the lessons we're learning from the life of Mary and Joseph, from the prophecy here of Simeon. There's only one Savior. We are recipients of his salvation by grace, but we're not part of his salvation in terms of actually saving ourselves. So nothing can be added to your work. You are to be believed. You are to be obeyed. But even our faith and obedience are your gifts to us. So you get all the credit. Paul calls it a new creation. We are a new creation, which means we don't think with the old thoughts, the old, the old motives, the old goals. We think new thoughts. We have new ambitions. And that's to serve God. And to love God. Yeah, we love our families too. We do. And even if they don't love our God, we still love them. But when it comes to that which is eternal, we choose, by your grace, God's family. Help us to see that. Many don't. I pray that you'll forgive us if we have in any way placed our temporal families above you. The best thing we can do for our children is to show and demonstrate a love for God that is special and unique and unflinching. Grant that to us, Lord. In a few moments we'll gather around your table, Lord, and we'll reflect upon what it costs God to bring us into his family. And we're not to forget that. And I pray for everyone here, anyone here that does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that today you might open their eyes and open their heart to see this great gift that God has given, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. Not only to the religious, but those who have no religious affiliations at all. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about a way of life. And I pray that you will save them for your honor and glory and for their good. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.